1: I have you
2: loud and clear. Hello.
3: Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And
2: that is to say... Physics. Medicine. Nature. Or...
3: Speak. Time. The brain. Life. The universe.
2: This week, if they began at birth, how high could a person count to in their lifetime? Also, when lightning hits the sea, do the fish get fried... And can we create gravity on a spacecraft? Hello, I'm Chris Smith and this is The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by ukfast.co.uk. So first up, let's actually meet the team of luminaries we've assembled to answer your science questions this week. Richard Hollingham is from the Space Boffins podcast, and so you're going to be taking on anything space-related. Richard, any space-related facts you've got for us this I week? I don't
4: think I've ever been called a luminary before. Yeah, here's a space fact. The Opportunity rover, which has been on Mars, NASA's Opportunity rover, been on Mars since 2004, has travelled 43.94 kilometres, which I reckon is 6.25 millimetres per hour. And that's important because... I don't know, it's
2: cool, isn't it? <laughs> no, I think it's amazing, actually, that these rovers are still working. You know, these these are particular... So long, in really horrible yeah. conditions.
4: These were only designed to last a few months and the spirit and opportunity. Spirit has, has died, but opportunity is still going, despite only being powered by solar panels and it's still trundling across Mars and the uh, NASA team is still amazed it's trundling across Mars. It's
2: an amazing piece of engineering. Also with us, Danielle Green is a marine biologist. She's at Anglia Ruskin University and and you're looking at human aspects on the ocean, Daddy, and specifically plastics and things like that.
3: Yeah, so for the last three years I've been looking at the impacts of plastic, including microplastics on marine organisms and ecosystems. So it's microbeads and other bits of plastic.
2: Any particular ocean-related information you'd like to impart?
3: Um, the ocean is our dominant biome, accounting for about 72% by surface area of the Earth and about 98% if you look at it in terms of 3D Volume.
2: Well, those are some big numbers. And talking about uh, having a head for numbers, Tim Revel is a mathematician. He's also an author of the book Man Versus Maths. He's a former naked scientist, and he now works for New Scientist, where you cover tech and maths. That That's true. Thing,
1: but once a, a naked scientist, always a naked scientist. Oh, <laughs>
2: good on you. Good on you. Also with us is uh, Chris Basu, who's a scientist at the Royal Veterinary College. Now, you're doing a PhD in giraffes. Yes. You're sticking your neck out there.
5: Oh, yeah. I like it. Yes, I am. Uh, yeah, I study giraffe locomotion. And one of the things that astounds me is how rubbish giraffes are sometimes at uh, running around really fast but it doesn't really matter because they tend to hang around and just kick things to death if they want to versus run away. So I therapy. thought they hit things with their heads. They do. They hit each other with their heads. But if a lion goes up, yeah, they like to kind of turn around and just give them a bash with the back foot. Now, Chris,
2: this question really is probably for you, but we're going to invite everyone to, to consider this. It's from Laura, and she says, my husband, our four-year-old, and I were recently watching an episode of Sean the Sheep where the naughty cat dresses up like a jaguar and bits of the dog has to try and stave him off. This got us thinking about the ancestors of these animals, and we were wondering, in a hypothetical skirmish, who's going to win, jaguar or wolf? So what do we all think? Richard, what do you reckon, jaguar or wolf? I
4: you think off? wolf, but I think in reality multiple wolves, because wolves are in packs, I think they would win. Danny?
3: Yeah, I'd go wolf as well. I think they'd go straight for the throat too, just get in there.
1: Tim? Tim? Well, I was also going to go wolf, but I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be a Sean the Sheep, so I'm going to say jaguar.
5: Well, Chris, well, tell us, um, or put us out of our misery, rather, what's the answer? Well, I think if I was locked in a zoo enclosure with one of these animals, I definitely hope it was the wolf. First of all, there's the weight issue. So a jaguar can weigh up to about 100 kilos, and a grey wolf is about half this. And then wolves tend to hunt in groups, so groups of six and over will take down something about 100 kilos. So, uh, yeah, if the jaguar is by itself, it really won't need um, any help with taking down a wolf. So I think it's the cat every time, no context. But, yeah, on a personal note, I'm also a veterinary surgeon, and if I'm faced with an angry cat or an angry dog... I would definitely prefer the angry dog. Cats are way meaner.
2: (laughs) Yeah, people say that cat bites are really nasty compared to dog bites because their teeth are much sharper and more penetrating, so they tend to produce deep-seated wounds that you get certain kinds of infections in there, like um, pastorella, multicider infections and things, nasty.
5: yeah. Cat bites are absolutely horrible. Cats' mouths are really, really dirty things, and, yeah, they just inject these bacteria deep into your soft tissues. It hurts. And we have these things as, as pets.
2: I love cats. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny, isn't it, how people break down into a cat person or a dog person. Do
5: you you find that with the the patients that you see? I've met plenty of people who are quite, yeah, polarised either side. Uh, You get crazy, crazy cat people, I guess like me, and you do get crazy dog people as well. Danny, dog
2: person, cat person? I was
3: raised by greyhounds. All my early memories are of just this big white greyhound called Mitzi. I don't think, even being toilet trained, I'm not even going to go into it, but um, (laughs) I don't remember my parents being there. (laughs) I'm sure they were, but yeah, definitely a dog person. I think if I have to
1: decide I'm probably a dog person, but I 'm really neither. I mean having an animal in my house is not top of my list, but if I had to have one, it would be a monkey, definitely
2: although there's you know there's been a lot of news coverage about people actually taking captive primates in the wild isn't there and it's 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 causing quite a lot of controversy chris
5: yeah, I mean monkeys they're not really suited um to be to be pet animals they're highly highly intelligent. And we kind of put them into these domestic situations where they're just not suited. And, you know, it's quite a stressful thing. So I'm I'm quietly judging you for your your monkey (laughs) comments here.
1: Yeah. Can I just say that was a joke? And uh, I I do not I do not plan to take a a primate or anything of the sort from its natural habitat and put it in my home. Just call Tim Michael Jackson.
2: (laughs) Right. Now, Tim, uh, since you've sort of put yourself in the firing line a bit now, we've um, got this question here uh, from Simon.
5: If I started counting the second I was born, what
1: number would I reach
2: before I died?
1: Okay, so to answer Simon's question, I assume that he would be born today, and that means he would be expected to live to about 81 years old. And in seconds, that's about 2.5 billion seconds, So, which honestly is pretty rubbish. Even if you could count for every single second of your life and you didn't have to take any breaks for eating or for sleeping or for drinking or anything like that, even if you could count two or three numbers every single second, which you couldn't when you got to 100,000 or 100 million, it would take you a few seconds for each number, you still wouldn't even reach a trillion. And I think if you're going to dedicate your life to something, you would want to reach a number that you couldn't even think of. You want some sort of squillion or quadrillion that, you know, people have never heard of. But a trillion, you're not even going to reach, which I think is pretty rubbish. Has anyone tried this? Well, What's the Guinness Book of World Records say on this? So the best example I could find was there was a guy called Jeremy Harper, who in 2007, he decided to count to one million for charity. And he streamed himself 24 hours a day. So you could just look in on what he was doing at any given moment. And he counted for about 16 hours every single day. It took him a total of 89 days to finish. So if you sort of work that out, for him to just get to a billion, it would have taken him 243 years. So it's, it's just not worth your time at all. And, I mean, it really isn't. So Jeremy Harper, he raised $10,000 Throughout his 89 days of counting which if you work that back that's about seven dollars an hour so it'd have been better off going to <laughs> just go and getting a job yeah. and
2: donate it all to charity yeah
1: absolutely that is it's the worst idea it's not it's not good for you in terms of money it takes a lot of time to count very high so don't bother doing it now uh,
2: speaking of, of numbers danielle we've got this question here from ricky what is the longest animal in the ocean
3: well, although most people think it's the blue whale and they can get to about 30 metres, the longest animal in the ocean and indeed in the world is actually a, a humble worm called the um, the bootlace worm or lineus longissimus, which is quite aptly named. And the longest one ever, if it's the longest recorded animal ever found and it washed up in about the eight, the mid-1800s after a big storm in St Andrews. And it was 55 metres long. This is just a worm. About 10 centimetres um, wide. And the thing about these worms, these these ribbon worms, they have a toxic proboscis that whips out. I'm doing hand signals on the radio. That whips out, and it has a neurotoxin in it that it uses to um, to get its prey. So I don't know what a 55 meter worm was preying on, but we don't really, you know, we don't know what's out there. How many more of these massive worms there are?
5: Chris, I was wondering if you know, does it have a nervous system that travels like? the whole length, so a nervous system that's 55 metres long?
3: Well, the smaller ones do, yeah, so I believe that it would have. Wow. I just wonder how long
5: it takes for action potentials to go, you know, from one end Note to the impulses.
2: other. Nerve impulses. Yeah, Let's that's travel. a really good question. Yeah, Because yeah. <laughs> you think the... Sensory nerve information travels at about one meter per second in small nerve fibres, doesn't it? So it might take up to a minute to get your <laughs> to, get your, to, the to get your sensation. But motor yeah. motor information is a hundred meters a second, so movements might go a little bit faster. But uh, that's intriguing, isn't it? Where, where do these worms hang out? They sound terrifying. You'll find
3: them all around the UK. Really? Yeah. The, the boot lace worm. If you look it up, there's some really cool YouTube videos of them wriggling around. They're awesome. Um,
2: what about uh, land animals, though? Chris, I
5: mean, you're our, our, our zoology slash um, animal expert. B- biggest land animals? Oh, it has to be a snake of some kind. So I wonder about the reticulated python.
3: Was the, was the question animal? Good point. Because if it's organism, it could be fungus. You know, they have those, those massive, like, what are they called again?
2: A mycorrhizal. That's
3: it. That's the word I can never say. Yeah. <laughs> those yeah. can be like hundreds and hundreds of metres, can't they?
2: Well, there are literally hectares. I think the biggest but, yeah. living organism it lives in America, and it is a giant subsurface fungal network, which is hectares in size. So that, that's true. But in terms of land animals, I mean, how how big is a giraffe in terms of its its actual mass
5: and that kind of thing? How much does one of those weigh? Because they, they don't look like they would weigh much, but they they I guess actually quite big. Yeah, they vary. They vary from about eight hundred kilos to, up to about um, yeah one and a half ton sometimes. In terms of height, really, really tall giraffes are about five to six metres high. Now,
2: is this true, Chris, that they have special adaptations so they don't explode
5: their brain with their
2: blood pressure becoming too high if they put their head down to drink? Is that true?
5: Yeah, it's a a bit of a problem. You've got to be able to push all this blood up to the head, so you've you've got to work against gravity. But when giraffes lower their head to drink, for example, they've got this problem. How do they actually stop their heads exploding, their eyes popping out of their skulls and we think it's because they've got a network of really fine blood vessels that acts like a sponge so it acts to mop up this excess blood pressure when the head is down and uh, release it when the head is up i was having a conversation because medical people do this kind of thing the other day about
2: uh, animals throwing up and uh, hmm. we, were, we were speculating that maybe this might be a challenge for a giraffe. But then someone pointed out, well, they are ruminant animals, yeah. aren't they? So they actually have a very good mechanism for regurgitating what's yeah, in their stomach and chewing it back over again. So yeah. in fact, they
5: should be able to throw up without problems. It's problem. crazy. You can actually watch. So, yeah, you can see food going down the neck and you can see it going back up as well. <laughs> uh, it's, really, it's really creepy when you watch it. And that's food for thought, isn't it? Uh, You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me,
2: Chris Smith, and today we've got a panel of pundits who are taking on your science questions. So if you're curious about something, give us a try and tweet at Naked Scientists or email chris at com, and we'll try and put your questions into the next one of these shows. Now, look, Richard, um, we've got a question here from uh, Loiso, who says, why is a spacewalk such a big deal? Is it difficult and dangerous to walk in space? And if so, why? It is
4: difficult and dangerous to walk in space. Uh, When they first walked in space, the first astronauts to to walk in space, so Alexei Leonov and uh, for the Soviet Union, Ed White for the US. Well, Alexei Leonov, at the time they painted it as all this great heroic spacewalk, all went perfectly. Well, he barely got back in To his spacecraft. He was almost left outside in orbit around the Earth. Ed White had a great time pinging around with this little jetpack thing, uh, this little rocket gun he had, and he made it look so easy. It turned out to be really difficult because people imagined it being like swimming, and I've done the NASA virtual reality training. Where they train astronauts at Houston. I've been and they, they set me down this virtual reality headset. And they could sit you on a chair and then they press the button and suddenly you're in space. Wow, right above the Earth. And the temptation is when you leave the International Space Station, so you're looking down, you pull yourself out of the space station on these railings and then you feel you let go. You, you move away and then you, the temptation is to swim back towards the space station and you can't because you're not pushing against anything there's nothing there's nothing going on so it becomes very difficult during the 60s they figured this out with lots of the lots of handrails lots of uh, things to grab onto um things to anchor yourself to What they found was they hadn't thought about this. this is what i find incredible so they'd have a spanner so they'd have to turn a a bolt on a spacecraft of course you turn a spanner unless you're uh, you turn as well so they had to work out, well, we've got to anchor ourselves, then we can turn the spanner. And then you think about the other problems with a spacewalk. You're in your little spacecraft, essentially. A spacesuit is a spacecraft. You're connected by an umbilical or you might have, um, you have certainly a backup uh, life support system on you. So there's all the things that can go wrong with your personal spacecraft. And Luca Parmitano, a European astronaut, a couple of years ago now, his spacesuit started filling up with water. So he was the only astronaut who almost drowned in space because there was a leak inside his spacesuit.
2: Don't those spacesuits cost an exorbitant amount of money? It's literally millions. Per yeah, suit? and they
4: have to. Yeah, it is million. They're all made, uh, they're all individually made. I mean, some we, you can adapt to fit different astronauts, but you look at the size of astronauts, and usually the Americans are really quite tall. Tim Peake, the the British European Space Agency astronaut, is relatively short, so they have different different spacesuits. There's a Soviet space suit. Uh, are they? russian spacesuit now and the american spacesuit slightly different um but yeah tim Piggs is he's going back into space he yeah. is yeah we don't know when yet but he is going back into space yeah
2: jolly good thank you very much richard now i've got uh, another question here actually i think this one's coming my way
5: let's have a listen to this hello naked scientists this is adil asad from seattle washington
1: here's my question for you assuming an average western life expectancy what percentage of the atoms we are born with do we die with?
2: Wow, that's an easy question, isn't it? Richard, what do you think? I mean, just ask you for your sort well, of speculation. Well, it,
4: it's that great philosophical question, isn't it? That if we regenerate ourselves, are we still us anymore? It's the question you could apply to the Flying Scotsman, for example, to bring it round to trains. So the Flying Scotsman locomotive built in the 30s, I think the 30s, rebuilt so many, so many times, completely rebuilt recently, is it still the same engine as was originally built? Because so many pieces have been replaced.
2: In that great comedy, Fools and Horses, I remember Trigger saying, he shows Delboy his broom and says, this is my great-grandfather's broom. And, and uh, Rodney goes, what, the, the real one? And he says, well, it's had one or two new handles and heads since then. But yeah, yeah, it's the, it's the original broom. Um, Danny, you want, want to speculate how many of your atoms are the ones you were born with?
3: Killed a lot of mine off my first few years of university. I think. But um, I I think what you were saying about the about the brain, about the accounting for about was it 5% of your weight and the, the your eyes and all that, I'd say about 3%.
2: So we've got a 3% from Danny. Tim, any thoughts?
1: I think it has to be a low percentage. I mean, we know that quite a few different cells die and then you replace those cells. And this happens at different sort of rates throughout your body. And I think this happens for most of your cells. So by the time you're dead, I'm thinking you've, Replaced quite a few of them?
2: I think it's actually quite a difficult one to know the precise answer to this, but the the sort of making it into the simplest question possible, you could argue, well, how much does a newborn baby weigh? About seven and a half pounds or a new money three and a half kilo or so. How much does the average adult human weigh? 70 kilo. Therefore, your birth weight as a proportion of your grown adult weight is 3.5 divided by 70 times 100. That means you weigh about 5% at birth of what you will as an adult. Therefore, if you're growing from 5% to your full size, Only 5% of the atoms in your body can, by definition, be the ones you're born with. Therefore, the number, the answer to this question, cannot be more than 5%, I would argue. Um, Therefore, it's got to be less than 5%, but it's not 0%. Now, we know that things like your brain and the nervous system, those cells and some muscle cells are also there for life. Your heart cells, for instance, last you a lifetime therefore the answer probably is what proportion is the brain of your total body mass It's a couple of percent so it's probably somewhere between two percent and five percent of the atoms that you are born with last you a lifetime because you've got literally cells in your brain that are lasting you a lifetime and the dna in those nerve cells because the cells are not dividing the dna in those cells is not being replaced so i'd say the number is probably close to about two and a half to three percent that'd be my guess
4: Sure. Yeah, so yeah, I like the way you show your workings there. <laughs> very good. Okay. You get marks yeah. for that. Yeah, you get <laughs> so, marks. Excellent, very good.
2: Now Chris, one for you. Um after watching one of many YouTube videos of cats chasing laser beams around a room, Ivana wants to know, how can cats see red laser lights when she says it's known and you can tell us whether it is known, that cats lack red receptors in their eyes. Now, what does she mean by that? And
5: is that true or is that a myth? Yeah, no, she's spot on. Um, cats aren't great at seeing red colours. They're actually red-green colourblind. So at the back of our eye, our retina, um, we have light-sensitive pigments that enable us to see colour, and cats don't really have the pigments that enable them to see red. So, yeah, they can't distinguish red and green lights. So they can still see the light, but they they cannot tell the difference between a red light and a green light. It's just a patch of light to them. Exactly. So it doesn't really matter um, what colour the laser pointer is, but what they um, lack when they lack colour perception they really make up for it in terms of their ability to see things like dim light. So at the back of our eye we've got different kinds of cells that help us see light. We've got the cones which are full of these um, pigments that help us see colour and then we've got rod cells and rod cells are really good in dim light and they're really good for picking up darty kind of movement and Cats are, cats' retinas, I should say, are jam-packed full of rod cells. So if you actually look at a laser pointer, you imagine it from the viewpoint of a cat. Cats are really good at seeing dim light, so this laser pointer really kind of shouts and stands out at them. And in terms of their evolution, they're kind of primed to, you know, chase and see quick, darty movement. So it's really the perfect stimulus for them. Have they evolved to not be able to see the rich
2: range of colours that we have, purely because they are really nocturnal animals they hunt at night when there's low light and under those conditions you actually can't see colours anyway
5: yeah, it's a it's a it's a question that lots of people have asked before. If you imagine um the mammalian ancestor, you know, small, potentially nocturnal animal, um it's that's one idea that uh mammals as a group have actually lost this ability um to see a really kind of wide spectrum of color. And it's only as you go further down the evolutionary line when you get to animals like primates, they've actually um although their ancestors may have lost some of these uh, colour sensitive pigments primates have actually almost regenerated that ability to a certain extent so we see uh, primates like us um, see uh, colour but that's because we've kind of regained that ability through time So a cat wouldn't be able to
2: tell the difference between a ripe and an unripe strawberry, for example.
5: No, cats would be really terrible at picking fruit. Um, Yeah, really, really, really rubbish at that job. I'll
2: bear that in mind, Chris, when I'm looking for a fruit picker this summer. Now, Stella wants to know the answer to this one.
3: In a time where I can access my bank account with a small sequence of numbers and unlock my phone with a fingerprint, why is it I still have to find a physical set of keys every time I want to enter or leave my home? are keys more secure than their digital equivalent? Is it easier to hack a system than pick a lock? Or will I soon be entering my home using retinal scans and fingerprints?
1: What do you think, Tim? Well, to answer Stella, uh, she doesn't have to use a set of keys if she doesn't want to. There are, I have a friend, for example, who has a really cool setup. When he's sort of on his way home, His heating slowly starts to heat up because his phone knows he's on the tube on his way back home. And then as he slowly gets towards his door, his lights come on automatically because he's starting to get inside his Wi-Fi zone. And then as he gets to his front door, of course, he doesn't have a standard key turning lock. He's got a number pad that he just types in the number and opens up the door. This stuff is already here. Um, It's just the case that the reason why a lot of people still have keys is because they're installed on a lot of doors how many people do you know who've actually bothered to change the locks on their doors and these things are still a bit more expensive a lock is a very simple mechanical device that you turn and a bolt goes through the door but if you want a lot of office buildings have these sorts of things where you can use a retina scan or you can use a fingerprint so this technology is here so if stella really wants it she can have it what about power cuts
4: because that's a, that's a you know or the wi-fi going down i mean i have a, a stereo system around the house which is brilliant you show off mm. to friends and everything look i can do on, on my uh, on my
1: phone i can do all this and then the wi-fi goes down and you know it's rubbish so th- this is a problem um but if, it, if it's <laughs> yeah. it, it depends to what to what extent so if this is for actually for your lock on your door probably that doesn't consume much power anyway and so it we would expect it to have a battery that can back up the system should you need to still get in um and some, or quite often these systems also have a lock that you can use with a key as a backup if you need it. A bit like car keys. A lot of car keys are still beepers. But there's normally a way you can sort of get into the side of the car key card or something and there's a little key that you can use somewhere. So, yeah, we need electricity for this stuff, but it's normally not much. So it's not too bad if the system goes down. But
4: it's not zombie apocalypse proof.
1: <laughs> uh, no, but neither are locks. Neither are regular locks. I mean, the, the thing with all of these things is actually doors and locks are are reasonably secure. But if someone wants to get in your house, they're probably going to break your window. There's no fingerprint sensor on those. So it's sort of, you know, most people don't bother. And a lock is often made of steel, but your door is probably made of wood. So you can just saw straight through past that.
2: Well, I'm glad we cleared that one up. Thanks (laughs) very much, (laughs) Tim. Now, Danielle, we got this rather fishy question from Eleanor.
3: How do animals have sex underwater? Well, there's a huge variety of ways that they do and um I'll tell you a couple of my favorites barnacles for example because they're stuck on a rock they're hermaphrodites as well but they they're not guaranteed they're going to be able to reach a partner in order to have sex so they've they've overcome this by having an extremely long and extendable penis so barnacles actually have the longest penis to body size ratio of any animal in the world
2: how long are we talking
3: uh, i'm talking about 40 times the body length of the barnacle the penis can extend well, so and that's, then they that's just quite sort of, long yeah they just sort of wiggle that over and Bob's your your uncle and your aunt because they're hermaphrodites. I'm not not sure. (laughs) Actually, (laughs) that's um, that's
2: true, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, so they
3: can be... um, And it depends that the morphology of the penis changes depending on the wave energy too. So if it's a really exposed, wavy place, they have to be a bit... Thicker, you have a bit more heft to it. And if it's quite a sheltered shore, then they can be long and thin. Sort of is that a
2: reflection on the species or subspecies of barnacle? Or is it that um, the barnacle is adapting to that's the environment? Adapting
3: to the environment, yeah. That can change with the same species, but just different wave exposures. Okay, so but, that's
2: barnacles. Yeah, that's barnacles. What, what else? My, can animals my
3: favourite do? one is actually the green spoon worm, Bonellia viridus. And these things, when they're larvae and they, they settle on the seafloor, they're sexless. They have no sex assigned. And when they settle, if they settle in a space that has no other of their conspecifics, the same species nearby, they'll turn into females. They grow about 15 centimetres long. They, they look, they're quite an interesting looking thing. But if they land near another one of the same species, it'll be a female and it touches them with this pigment called bonellin. And that actually turns that larvae into a male. And then what they do is they have this kind of spoon shaped proboscis. They vacuum them up and store the male inside their genital sac. And they just keep them in there and they're little dwarf males and never get any bigger than a few millimetres. S-
2: so how many males will the female have in her Saharian men? Really, As many she
3: wants. She'll just store them in there. Their job is just to produce sperm. They just become like a pair of testicles, really? sort of reduced down. Goodness. and she feeds them. And yeah, it's and amazing. She feeds them.
2: How does she feed them? So I they, think they, it's they live off things secreted inside yeah, the female.
3: Exactly. Yeah. So it's an amazing system. What happens it's if really the female
2: good. dies? Do the men, males, then perish with her, or yeah, can they, they change they, they their? They sex? go down
3: with a sinking ship if <laughs> right. if she dies. Yeah. No, and, they and can't change after once that. they've
2: determined their sex. That's then locked in. That's
3: locked in. Yeah.
2: Yep. Imagine that. Cool one, Danielle. Thank you very much you're listening to the naked scientist with me chris smith and today i'm joined by a panel of experts who are taking on your questions they're richard hollingham who's a space boffin tim revel who is a journalist with new scientist daniel green who is a marine biologist and chris basu who is a veterinary surgeon and studies giraffes and between them they're looking at space, mass, animals and the sea. If you'd like to get a question into a programme like this, then you can email chris at scientist.com, or you can tweet at Naked Scientists. You can, of course, also find us on Facebook. Now, Richard, we've got this question for you from Paul, who says, with all of the talk of problems associated with the dangers of health of long-term microgravity, in other words, being out there in space and not with your feet firmly anchored on the ground... Why is no one talking about using centrifugal force to solve it like they did in 2001 at Space Odyssey? Yes,
4: yeah, so we know that space is bad for you. Space, being in space, being in microgravity, it causes um, loss of muscle, loss of bone. I mean, really quickly. You only have to be there a matter of hours before these things start really? happening. Yeah, it, very, very quickly. Problems with the nervous system, problem with the immune system. And we, we, are, we are adapted to gravity that's how we evolved we 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 live around gravity so those nervous system problems and immune problems are they down to a lack of exposure they are still being investigated but it would seem certain i mean there are other things going on in the space environment when you haven't got gravity you've got for example with the the immune system because you're not got gravity bugs bacteria viruses won't sink so they're around you all the time so there could be things like that and we haven't got that many astronauts to study at any one time. So, you've not got a great group of uh, people to look at. To, they have gone on to live a fairly long time, though, these yeah, astronauts. Yeah, they, they do pretty well. I and mean, we just had a, a year long mission. Um, but the problem is going to be not so much, you know, a year is fine. A trip to Mars is going to be at least nine months out then you're actually on Mars, and then you've got to come back nine months. I mean, first of all, going out, you don't want... So, you know, the giant leap for mankind, you don't want to come down the bottom of the ladder, fall off, and break your leg or something, which could happen if you're not adapted. So at the moment in space, they have... Uh, various weight machines resistance machines shouldn't say weight machines resistance machines treadmills from tim peak when he was in space he ran the london marathon on the the treadmill so there are adaptations but artificial gravity that's the thing we actually would love and you look at those uh, fantastic images 2001 space odyssey uh, where you've got this big rotating spacecraft the amazing images from the 60s and 70s of these massive space stations that rotate and they're just really big really difficult to make but people are looking at those sorts of sort of options work? it would work absolutely you could get it to spin you create this not artificial gravity it's centripetal force so i think in 2001 that's a great example everyone i think everyone, everyone remember the 2001 space odyssey the opening, even if you didn't enjoy <laughs> even if you can look at the whole film it's a brilliant opening where he's doing this running he's basically running around the inside of the spacecraft the martian the uh, Matt Damon film recently. Again, it had an artificial gravity with this spacecraft spinning. Well, what does spinning it feel like, Richard? Space? When
2: you're in, do you feel like you're actually experiencing gravity, or do you just feel like you're on that fairground round ride that sort of does the same thing?
4: Trouble is, no one knows <laughs> because we haven't done it yet. It should feel like. Real gravity, And they are actually doing some experiments on a much smaller scale. For example, the um, German Space Agency actually has a mini centrifuge that they're looking at putting in the space station. Did you put
2: your wife on that?
4: Uh, no, I put her on a much bigger centrifuge, actually. <laughs> she was really good at it. I was rubbish. <laughs> absolutely rubbish i I really squealed so it is something that space agency is seriously looking at they've got to do something so a large spinning spacecraft would be the answer the problem is launching a large spinning spacecraft i mean it's taken what since 1998 to build the international space station you need something a lot bigger so it's a huge undertaking
2: so right now you just have to keep up with the exercise in space and and hope for the best thanks richard now uh, Chris, Jane wants to know,
5: do animals go through a menopause a bit like humans do? The menopause, it's it's a bit of a conundrum on, on the surface when you think about it. So if there's some kind of benefit to living a long life after the ability to reproduce, how do you actually transfer that benefit onto the next generation? And the answer to that kind of unites the animals that we do know go through the menopause. As far as we know, there's only two other species that go through menopause. And surprisingly, it's not an ape, it's not a primate. The other two are both whales. So elephants don't? Elephants don't. and yeah, They're very long-lived, aren't they? They are. And that's, uh, yeah, that's, a, that's also a question that other people have asked uh, when you think about in the context of, you know, why do whales do it? Why do people do it? Why don't elephants do it? So the answer to this question kind of it, it shows us what we have in common with all these animals. And part of it is what's called the granny effect. It's not called the granny effect after your nana or anything like that. It's actually named after a killer whale uh, which was, uh, who was called granny. Killer whales are... One of the species of whales... you do. Yes, I mean, exactly. There's a story in that. Why was it called Granny? Because she was really old, bless her. Oh, OK. So it was sort of logical then. So people started studying Granny about 40 years ago. Um, she actually died very recently, um, I think last month, uh, and she was about 100 years old. And during the 40 years of research, uh, she never had a calf, so she was menopausal. But the way that she actually helped her family group... Each year, she would actually take the whales to find out where the best stocks of fish were. So she was helping her immediate family um, to find the best resources of food. And because of that, she improved the health and welfare of her family. And so, of course, that's how they actually get to pass this ability on to the next generation. And then that goes on to uh, your question why don't elephants do this? Well, Whales are very family centric and people are very family centric as well. Whereas groups of elephants, they're they're not as loyal um, or rather their groups tend to kind of split off and reform. Whereas in people and in whales, the family groups tend to stay together very closely. So the fact that the grandma
2: may not be reproducing but is doing the babysitting and helping with family cohesion exactly. means that there's a strong contribution to the family unit's success. So exactly. you, you breed into exactly. The she's pass, evolution. She's
5: passing on um, the knowledge from her long lifetime. She's improving the health of the calves. The calves are more likely to survive, and then the next generation comes.
2: Thank you very much for that, Chris. Now, Tim, um, Hannah has sent in this question for you.
5: How do we keep finding extra digits of pi?
1: Yeah, that's, so that's a really good question. So what, what is pi? Let's start with that. If you grab your favourite circle, we call the distance around the outside the circumference, and we call the width, making sure you go through the middle, the diameter. And if you divide the circumference by the diameter, then you end up with pi, which is just this number, 3.14159-ish. But the thing is, I don't think we take the time to realise just how crazy pi really is. If you take a, a circle that is the size of a pinprick or you take a circle that is the size of the moon and you divide its circumference by its diameter, you get the same number. This is like some sort of universal conspiracy. This is why mathematicians study this so much. This is why we want to know pi so precisely, because it's it's a conspiracy. How does this happen? W- that- w- why why should we be surprised, though, Tim, that that's the case? Because the circle, if you make it bigger, then all those things increase in proportion. So that's exactly what pi is. So why, why is that a surprise? Well, for me, it's a surprise because, yeah, these things – I mean – Why should there be a particular relation between the way a circle looks around the outside versus going straight through the middle? These seem to me to be rather different things, but obviously the right answer is they're not different things because pi is what links them. So over the years, there's been lots of different attempts to try and work out pi to the most number of digits, but the truth is pi is actually… Uh, a rather tricky beast you're never going to work out all the digits of pi because it's what's called an irrational number so what this means is that if you write it out after the decimal point you are never going to stop there an infinite number of digits after that decimal point so over the years there's been lots of different ways to try and calculate pi beyond just measuring it various formulas and things and the current world record is 22 trillion trillion digits which uh, was calculated by a guy called Peter Trueb in 2016 in November Why? Uh, well, that's a good question why. So at the moment, it seems to be just a sort of show of how good is your algorithm and your computer.
2: i say how good is your computer, because that's yeah. a
1: lot of memory
2: you're going to need that's to That's a lot of memory
1: and a lot of time that it takes to actually compute these things. You need a big computer and you need to leave it for a long period of time. And actually in terms of how useful is that, it's not very useful. So NASA, they only ever use 15 digits of pi. And if you wanted to measure the whole universe down to a precision of a single atom, you would only need 40 digits of pi. So so to get to 22 trillion is a lot. So when we have this question from Hannah that is,
2: how do we keep finding extra digits? Because mm. it's an irrational number, if you just keep cranking the handle, you will keep churning out numbers as long as you keep turning the handle. It will never end.
1: Yeah, we know ways of getting closer and closer to this idea of what is pi, this this sort of number. But writing down those digits will take an awfully long time. So it's about finding the time and the energy and the people to want to do it. So we will be able to do that for the rest of humanity.
2: There you go, Hannah. That's a comforting thought, isn't it? Now, Daniel, Simon may have a solution to our ocean's plastic problem, which is, I know, something that you're particularly interested in.
1: Hello, Naked Scientists. I was wondering whether plankton could be genetically modified to clean the ocean up of tiny plastic particles. Thank you.
3: Well, it's a pleasure to hear such a beautiful accent. Well, zooplankton actually already do eat microplastics and they pretty much just pass straight through the body. And by Um, zooplankton you mean these are animal, little microscopic animals? Yeah, so little animals, um, copepods, amphipods, like little crustaceans, little crabs. And they already have been found, loads of different species, to contain microplastics. And in the lab they'll eat microplastics. What Um, is a
2: microplastic?
3: It's a Technically, the definition is it's less than five millimetres in diameter, which isn't actually the definition of micro, but they're small pieces of plastic. And they can either be purpose-made primary microplastics, which are microbeads or um, so exfoliants, things like that. They can also be secondary microplastics, which are the breakdown of larger bits of plastic litter. Or actually the most common source is synthetic clothing fibres.
2: And Why are we worried about them if, if they're just plastics bobbing around in the ocean? Why are they a worry?
3: Well, they're, they're the most um, abundant form of solid waste in the world at the moment, and they're increasing at a pretty quick rate. We're not exactly sure how much they're increasing, but they can go through the food web. They've been found in laboratory conditions to cause harm to certain animals, so they can uh, reduce reproductive rates, and there's potential for huge knock-on effects to the, to the whole ecosystem as well. My own research has found that they can actually decrease the biomass of microalgae so this this is the base of the food web. Because they're in everything, they can, they can have an effect on everything potentially. We're not exactly sure what they're doing. Um, but in terms of the, the zooplankton and eating them, um, some other studies have found that they'll eat them and then poop them out and they become like an accumulation. They sink to the bottom of the sediment and then they become available for other organisms. So um, deposit feeding worms, so worms that eat the sediment like lug worms and then, you know, fish will eat the lug worm and, you know, So it's another way of it becoming available to other organisms. In terms of genetically modifying, I would, as an Australian in particular, any sort of biocontrol terrifies me. (laughs) We've had too many bad experiences. But there actually are people working on using bacteria to break down microplastics and plastic pollution in general. And there was lots of work going on about this, but... I think it's potentially dangerous given that a lot of things in the ocean that we use are made of plastic. You don't want microbes spreading around willy-nilly, eating all of, you know, your, the bottom of your boat or. No, sure. Yeah. Sounds, <laughs> I think we have sounds to be alarming.
2: Um, the, the worry, I, I presume, is that they're going to be in the water for a really long time, long whatever time. the outcome, yeah. isn't and it?
3: And they're increasing at, you know, at a huge rate as well.
2: Thanks, Daniel. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? Now, um, Richard. William has been thinking about our hunt for E.T., and he's written in to The Naked Scientist. It's Chris at NakedScientist.com, and he says
1: this. Am I right in thinking Goldilocks' theory now maintains there are hundreds of parameters, such as the exact diameter of Earth, exact gravitation, atmospheric composition, distance from the sun, magnetic field, and so on, which, if even slightly different, would make life on Earth impossible. If so, doesn't this make the search for exoplanets a bit futile?
4: Nice question, Chris. So, yes, uh, as Chris said, the uh, Goldilocks zone, which is the the area we inhabit, the area the Earth inhabits, we are the perfect distance from the sun. We have stability, gravitational stability, so Earth doesn't wobble around in its orbit around the sun thanks to the moon sitting there orbiting around the Earth. We have a magnetic field, and this is very important for life. So the magnetic field gives us this magnetosphere which is this like a protective magnetic bubble around the earth which protects us from particles charged particles from the sun stops us getting zapped and yeah we're pretty much the right size so everything about earth is great. That doesn't necessarily mean... Not everything.
2: I mean, it's a, well, no, that, I
4: mean, you know, we, we haven't that. got time to go into all the things that are wrong right now. Let's, let's talk about all the things that are great physically with the Earth. Um, so it's great for life. That doesn't necessarily mean that other places aren't great for life. It's just that life might be different there. I'm firmly of the view there is a lot of life out there might not be like us and it, i don't think it's going to be intelligent life but i think you look at places like hydrothermal vents deep underwater where very toxic environments where you can find particularly bacteria viruses other microorganisms that we thought there's no way life could be there you just need some sort of source of source of energy and probably water but not necessarily so the argument with uh, jupiter's moons which may have liquid water the energy there won't come from the the sun, the energy there will come from the gravity of Jupiter. So you're looking at all these places that, well yeah there could be life, Doesn't just won't necessarily be us.
2: I was very fortunate to go down uh, one of the world's deepest gold mines in South Africa <laughs> and in fact... Um, in, in these operations, there are microbiologists working because there are seeps of water and you can prove chemically that the water has been cut off from the rest of the world for millions of years, maybe 100 million years plus. You can tell that from the chemistry of the water. And yet when you look in this water, which in some cases is at 60 degrees centigrade, you can find it's thriving with bacterial life. So people say, well, where do they come from? And when scientists unpicked this, and this was a paper in Science about 10 years ago, um, what they find is that there is uranium present in the ore and the uranium is spitting out radiation and the radiation is doing things to water molecules and, and giving them some energy and the water molecules then attack minerals in the rocks and release them for these microbes to live on and the first layer of microbes eat those and then other microbes eat those first microbes. And you've got this whole ecosystem growing powered by radiation. So people, once they found that, they said, well, look, it's not so unlikely that you could have somewhere else in our solar system in a very inhospitable place. But it's got a nice warm interior because it's radioactive and there's life there.
4: Yeah, we, we, we can't answer the fundamental question of how life gets there in the first place. But there does seem to be life in the most unlikely places. Thanks, Richard. Still got lots
2: of questions to get through here on The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith. Uh, now, Cody has sent in this question.
0: I'm an emergency room nurse, and I've always wondered, do medical care professionals get ill more or less often because of their constant exposure to pathogens? In other words, does our constant exposure to pathogens increase our immune responses, leading to a decrease in illness prevalence?
2: Quick straw poll of what we think here of our panel. Chris, um, what do you think? Obviously, you don't catch too many things from your patients, hopefully, because they're animals, but you can catch some things from animals.
5: But what about human bugs? What do you think? I don't know, but I visited my GP the other day. Uh, I felt terrible. Um, I had a really horrible sinusitis. Um, I had mucus coming out almost every place. And i are went really into, selling this. I went, up to, I went up to my GP and he immediately put out his hand. And I'd already told myself I'm not going to shake his hand, but the kind of stupid... British politeness in me um, made me stick my hand out um, I shook his hand then he said how are you feeling and I said oh I'm terrible I've got mucus coming out everywhere it's horrible and he was like oh that's nice and then immediately got the hand gel out and um, disinfected his hands um, I would have thought it would be very easy for healthcare professionals to pick up bugs
2: and you know what's really sad is that that hand gel is great for some bugs like bacteria mm. but there are lots of microbes including rhinoviruses that cause nasty colds and enteroviruses that cause nasty fluy colds they're totally immune to the yeah. alcoholic hand rub. And so what you end up with is a nice pure culture of these bugs on your skin, which you then, you know, you touch your mouth, touch your eyes and they end up in you and you get infected. Yeah. I'm worried about my GP. I might go and just see how is. Apologise. You know, a bottle of wine might be good. Yeah, I good think so. I, th- I think the answer is, to answer Cody's question, yes, people are being exposed more often. We know that people who work in healthcare settings do catch things like the flu more often because we've got really good data comparing people who have a flu vaccine Vaccine with people who don't have the vaccine. And if you look at patients who are exposed to those care workers, the patients have a much better outcome because they catch flu less often. So this shows that there is a trade between what people come into the hospital with, what the healthcare professionals then pick up and what they then pass on to patients. So it's actually a two way street. The other half of this question is really, if I'm being exposed a lot, do I develop this sort of superhuman immune system? So I'm actually capable of fending off everything. Well, the answer is you still got to catch the thing in the first place because your immune system is an immune system because it adapts to what it's seen before and stops you catching it again. So you've still got to catch stuff in the first place place. You've still got to get ill at least once for each of these bugs in the first place. There are hundreds of different cold and flu viruses out there, so you're going to get ill hundreds of times anyway. So yes, you might develop quite a potent immune response, but B, these bugs are very common. They're also mutating and changing the way they look all the time and the number of exposures is incredibly high. So the likelihood is that medical professionals and teachers probably do pick up a lot more stuff a lot more of the time and they probably do get infected quite often. And that really is an occupational hazard, isn't it? Now Daniel, here's a question for you, and this is an electrifying question from John who wants to know, can you tell us, when lightning strikes the sea or other big bodies of water, does it fry the fish?
3: Well so when lightning strikes the sea it, it spreads out horizontally rather than vertically. So it would spread out along the surface. And because most fish and most um, in, in the marine most marine organisms tend to live kind of at deeper depths, they're likely to avoid being struck by lightning. But it doesn't mean that they can't be. And there have been cases where people have observed lightning strikes and then seen dead fish floating on the surface. So I think they can be, but it's not something that is a, a huge problem because it's not like it's going to radiate, you know, across the whole earth. Because it's, it it's spreading out over a,
2: and, and uh, as it spreads, it's going to weaken quite yeah, considerably, exactly, isn't it? Yeah. So the electric field to which a fish is going to be exposed is going to diminish really quite rapidly. Yeah.
3: And in terms of marine mammals as well, there's been some some observations, sort of fishermen's tales, so I'm not exactly sure if it's true of um you know, witnessing a whale being struck by lightning and things like that. But if a human gets struck by lightning, they don't always die. I think it's like what is it, twenty percent or something like that? It's not a good thing. No, <laughs> you wouldn't, I wouldn't go out of your way it. to yeah. get it, but yeah. yeah, they're not always gonna die from it anyway. So I think it's something that is possible, but it's not a huge a huge problem because they're usually deeper.
1: Tim? So one of the first things I ever did for The Naked Scientist was actually a piece about a person who had been struck by lightning and wanted to know about it. And the thing I most remember about this was we interviewed someone in the US who was all about lightning safety. And he came up with this great phrase that I will remember till the day I die, which is when thunder roars, stay indoors. <laughs>
2: Good quote. Farmers say, Chris, they sometimes find animals that have died in fields. They, they sometimes argue that lightning hits the ground or something and then travels across the ground. And if you've got a long animal like a horse or a cow, it could go up the front legs along the body, killing the animal en route
5: and then out the back legs. Do you think that's true? Yeah, I definitely think it's possible. I mean, imagine the setting, um, you've got a nice open field with livestock. Um, it seems like a, a good recipe for lightning strikes. I often wonder, um, yeah, are draft's particularly sensitive to this to this problem? Um, they tend to hang, hang out in open spaces. And... Well,
2: they've also got an inbuilt lightning exactly. conductor, haven't they? <clears throat>
5: exactly. <laughs> and yeah. is that the
2: case? Because you get some pretty vicious thunderstorms over the areas of Africa where these animals
5: live. Yeah, again, you hear lots of stories of people saying they've witnessed um, lightning strikes in giraffes. Um, yeah, I don't know. If anyone out there who knows about this can tell us, we'd love to
2: hear. Chris at thenakedscientist.com. Now, Tim, uh, Trey would like to know, why are the English and American billion different to each other? Um, and how do they differ?
1: OK, so this is one of those issues that is surprisingly contentious, considering how dull it really is. So to talk talk you through what actually are the difference between the American billion and the good old-fashioned British billion is when you think about how numbers go up, 10 tens in 100, 1,000 thousands in 1 million, and then what happens next is where things diverge. So in old-fashioned British counting, a million million used to be a billion, but in America, this would be a trillion. So it's actually 1,000 million is a billion so it's true there's no real logic in the American system, but there's also no real logic. Yeah, but there's no real logic in the British one either, because when you get to uh, what is a British trillion, well, it's not a billion billion, it's a million billion. Oh, okay. So it <laughs> breaks that, it breaks down in both cases, mm. but actually now these two things are the same. In the 70s, we actually decided that we're going to have the same as the American billion. And so overnight, we had huge inflation and what used to be known as a a billion became a trillion.
4: (laughs) I mean, I'm hugely confused. Is it something of just my age where people over 40 were told that there's this different system?
1: Well, I think in the UK, these things became standardised in the sort of mid 70s. But it The confusion has kept ever since. And I think partly in the UK, we don't really like taking things that are American. So people sort of fight against it. But yeah, the correct way is a thousand million is a billion. And actually, neither of these things are American or British. We took both of these systems from France. So
2: they've got two systems in operation.
1: Well, I think in France, they also use the same system that we all use now, but they created them both, and then for a while they used both systems, but they distinguished between them by calling them the long-scale system and the short-scale system.
2: Oh, goodness, that's just muddying the water even further, isn't it? we better move on. Now, Chris Gaynor would like to know, which apes did human beings originally evolve from, and how come we all develop to have different eye colours when it looks like apes themselves only have brown eyes?
5: Well, question of which apes did human beings actually evolve from... That's a big, big, big question. And that's the reason why this area of science, the study of human ancestors, is such a big and active area. That's because the honest answer is we don't yet know. We do know little pieces of the puzzle. So we know that by looking at DNA, the last common ancestor between human beings and chimpanzees lived about 7 million years ago. And when we look at fossils from around this time, we do find that these fossils do have uh, things in common with human beings. So we see um, like fossils from West Africa. They're starting to show the really early signs of things like bipedalism. But one of the challenges of this area is when we look at these fossils, we're not looking at our direct ancestor. It's like if I'm studying a photograph of my great uncle and I'm trying to imagine what my great grandfather looked like. So it's one of these challenges that we're trying to work out what our ancestors look like from our distant relatives. But going to the question of the eye colour, yes, our early human ancestors likely had brown eyes. And the diversity in eye colour that we see today comes from mutations in our genome. So for example, the mutation that gives us blue eyes, we can pin down to about 6,000 years ago. And perhaps one of the reasons why we do see a lot of variety in eye colour in humans is because... Uh, because of our white sclera. So the whites of our eyes really makes our eyes really kind of stand out, you know, um, really punch out when you when you look at them. And that's probably because things like nonverbal communication, so facial features, are really important in our society. That's why we're kind of drawn to look at eyes. Thank you very much, Chris. Now, Richard, Sheppo would like to know, how
2: do they get spacecraft? back to earth from the moon for example is there a runway on the moon for apollo to fly back from and how do you make the return back to earth safe
4: well it's actually quite an interesting question this so apollo had two engines so it could go down on the moon the last apollo was in 1972 it could go down onto the moon it uses the engine to slow itself down and get down onto the onto the surface really hairy if you listen to those uh, communications between mission control and the astronauts. You just hear all these things going wrong and then it's down and it's fine. Um, I th- uh, Neil Armstrong, the first uh, lunar landing in 1969, I think he had 11 seconds left of fuel to get down without crashing. But this was one of the, uh, an argument for cancelling Apollo. It was meant to run till at least 20 and the last Apollo mission was Apollo 17. So 11 to 17 um, and 13 didn't land on the moon. Um, was it's a single-point failure getting back. So there was a separate engine to get it off, to get the top part. of you. Those odd-looking lunar landers you see. So the top part, a separate engine, you press the button, and it fires, or it doesn't fire. If it doesn't fire, your astronauts are stuck on the moon. There is absolutely no way they can get back. What's also interesting about this is that the Soviet Union, who never managed to land... Uh, an astronaut on the moon or a cosmonaut they would say actually had a much better way of doing it so they had a lander but only could fit one cosmonaut in they never fortunately their rocket was rubbish they never got anywhere near the moon but they had their lander would have one cosmonaut get out of the lander go on the lunar surface if there was a fault with that lander and he couldn't get back at the same engine sort of system they actually were landing another lander couple of kilometers away and there was a rover he could use to get to the other lander to get back off the surface Did that land independently no one on that one yeah then. so that had that landed independently with no one on it he could use the rover this robotic rover to hitch a lift to get to the other lander to get get off the moon but it is something if we when we go back to the moon when we go to mars it's something to seriously think about it's not just getting there getting there is relatively straightforward we know how to do that it's getting back and it's always getting back
2: Thank you, Richard. I didn't know. That. That's amazing. Now, Danny, John has been in touch with this question.
0: I sometimes wonder, how great is the damage humans are causing to the oceans by discharging so many chemicals and excreted
3: drugs into them? Another Aussie. The Aussies are coming up with all the good questions here. Um, this is something that, that is a big concern. So basically everything that we put down the sink, so surfactants, things that are in shampoos and soap, also pesticides and different chemicals from from runoff, can end up... In the ocean, it's particularly an issue where they build up locally, so in coastal ecosystems. And these chemicals can cause issues for organisms. Some of them can act as endocrine disruptors. So they can mess with the endocrine system and um, affect the the way that hormones signal and the the production of hormones. And this can affect um, the organism's growth rates, um, their ability to reproduce. It can also cause intersex, which is when an animal has um, both male and female characteristics. Um, And this this can occur in all sorts of different animals, invertebrates like gastropods and crustaceans, also vertebrates, fish, um, and there's evidence of it in mammals too. So it is quite a huge problem and we are cracking down on a lot of these chemicals, so the pesticides, there's strong regulations that have been brought in in 2016 for for some of those. Um, As far as detergents and things go, there's still quite a bit of work to be done there I believe, but um, yeah, no, it is a concern.
2: Going back to the conversation we were having earlier about how long things like plastics do dwell in the environment though, many of these molecules are very long lived so even though we might put the kibosh on using them now we may actually have a very long time before we see that they're completely gone.
3: Yeah and the problem with some of the research as well is that you might not have strong enough evidence because in your laboratory experiment you're using high concentrations which aren't currently found in the natural ecosystem. But I mean this should be treated as a risk assessment of what can happen in the future if we allow the levels to, to keep building up So, yeah, the accumulation is a really important thing to remember.
2: Danny Green, thank you very much. And thank you to our other guests this week, who are Richard Hollingham, Tim Revel and Chris Basu. The producer was Georgia Mills. Now, next week, one of our producers, that was Connie, won a meteorite. So we're going on a quest to find out more about these visitors from space. Make sure you join us then. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the STFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. Until next week, from me and the rest of the team, goodbye.